his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. It is 607-608 now in the Twin Cities. 89 degrees. It feels steamy out there. Not sure what the dew point is, but it's just a little toasty. Uh, but I guess that's what we should expect. It is July in the summer. It has been a, a tumultuous week, uh, just kind of monitoring the coverage of the Justine Damon tragedy. And I got to say, I, and I don't know if everyone understands the full depth of this, the extent to which this story is getting international coverage, obviously in Australia, but certainly uh, in the UK, uh, across Europe, this is front page news. And a, it was obviously at the top of the newscast uh, – uh, for CBS News nationally, but clearly this is something that is uh, being looked at and examined. It's interesting to hear that they have this this witness who was apparently bicycling has come forward and may have a video of the aftermath. And I think we're probably going to hear more in the coming weeks and days. But it is certainly uh, a difficult situation. It does not look like it's going to get any easier with the situation with the city. Uh, I've known the uh, deputy chief. Um, Arredondo for many years, uh, and he's a good guy. I mean, he was the spokesperson for the police department way back in the day, and just seems like a very sort of a straight shooter. And uh, remains to be seen if he, I guess he has to be approved by the whole entire city council. Although it's hard to believe that he wouldn't be. I think he really composed himself and, and dealt with the situation extremely well uh, because the police chief Jeanne Harteau was out of town until Thursday which was too long. This was too much of a crisis uh, for her to be gone. And I get that you're on vacation with your family, but you need to come back. And I, I have, you know, I have admiration for Police Chief Harto as well. Um, and I think she, uh, I know it's not an easy job. Uh, and certainly it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out in the mayor's race. Obviously, that news conference, not a good situation for Mayor Betsy Hodges as, as protesters basically took it over. She was forced to leave and then forced to come back and say, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, well, listen, we have uh, a very good show lined up for you tonight. Um, we're going to talk about uh, – I saw this in the New York Times. I thought, oh my gosh, I've never heard of this. Uh, it's something called – and I'm not sure if I'm, I'm pronouncing it correctly – rhabdomyolosis. And what it is is it's the effects of extreme exercise and they are actually seeing it – in spinning classes, which are enormously popular, uh, and as people go to these spinning classes, and they maybe it's, maybe it's their first time. Sometimes people are in shape, and it's just crippling pain in the legs and joints. You even have to be hospitalized. So we're going to talk to an expert about that, uh, and then we're also going to um, talk with a leading expert about uh, Alzheimer's. The Alzheimer's Association International Conference took place last week. <coughs> Excuse me. Got a little bit of an allergy there. My apologies. Uh, we're going to talk to him about what the latest is in terms of developments in Alzheimer's research and what people should look for. Uh, there was a fascinating rerun on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago that, that kind of gave me the inspiration for that. But let's take a quick break. Uh, you are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's 613 in the Twin Cities. Well, have you ever heard of Rabdo? 
There's a longer version of that name, but it is a condition that uh, is caused by extreme exercise and it involves uh, intense uh, – actually can be in some cases uh, the overworked muscles begin to die and they leak their contents into the bloodstream, bloodstream, which strains the kidneys and causes severe pain. Now, it's pretty rare, thank goodness, but they are picking it up especially in – Spinning classes. So we thought we'd just talk to an expert about this. Steve Ritz is the founder of Fitness First. And we just wanted to talk to him about the dangers of extreme exercise or doing something, you know, one, 200% when you're more like a 50% person or haven't been involved in it for a while. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome, Esme. Thanks for having me. All right. So have you ever heard of this? I have. Um, probably the most regional. A story that I recognized was back in 2011. I don't know if you'll recall, there were 12 or 13 University of Iowa football players that were hospitalized during winter conditionings with this uh, this disorder. And then, as you said, now it's uh, resurfaced. I saw that New York Times article about the um, um, uh, spin classes. But yes, um, it's been a few years, but uh, the University of Iowa was my first uh, recognition or exposure to it with the, the football players. So it can be elite athletes as well. Well, okay, and let's talk about it. The University of Iowa football players. I mean, you're talking about people who are young, mm-hmm. who are very athletic, and who presumably are in pretty good shape, <laughs> better shape than, than, than most of us, and, and as and we go back to being very young. How can it happen even to an elite athlete? Well, in that particular case, is they had a form of resistance, so it was in the weight room, and the test that they're putting these athletes through, they're asking them to accelerate the movement of resistance, which when you couple resistance with, with acceleration, bad things can happen, whether it's to your joints or, in this particular case, the muscle tissue. So the, the test that they had them was uh, doing 100 squats, 50% of their max weight, in 17 minutes, I mean, that, that just sounds dangerous. And really what it is is when you, you want the muscles to adapt, and a little damage to the muscles is a good thing because that stimulates them to grow and adapt to that stress and become stronger. But when the stress is too great, as you stated, fibers are destroyed. And um, the breakdown or the, the, the falling apart of the muscle tissue releases components that can be harmful to the liver, the kidney, and the specific protein that, that's oh. released is the myoglobin, which causes that brown tea-colored urine, and, and that's a classic symptom. And um, it's a disorder that's acute in nature, and as I stated, it's that breakdown of the muscle fibers resulting in the increase of the muscle fiber content, specifically myoglobin, into the bloodstream affecting the kidney's ability to clear that toxin. So suddenly the muscle tissue is viewed as a toxin because it's been broken down, and that puts stress not only on the kidney but the liver as well. Wow. Okay. Steve Ritz is the founder of Fitness First. Um, so the, these are even, and I assume that 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 you know, I, I would hope that trainers would take note of something like this. You know, if something is coming up with eleven college athletes, mm-hmm. not just one or two. I mean, that, that's a large number. How about you know for sort of the weekend warrior? Because that that's what this particular article was about that caught my attention. And spinning is is pretty popular. But there again, you're accelerating, and then that's why I use the word resistance as opposed to just weight that people would traditionally view in the weight room. The resistance, when you crank down, anyone that's taken a spin course knows that the instructor has you 
um, tighten and release the tension to stimulate going up hills, down, things like that. And you're obviously accelerating to keep the tempo or the pace of the class and then that resistance. It can have the same effect of doing a, a, a squat with, with weight. And many of us have experienced what's called, there's two ways to term it, but acute compartment syndrome or exertional compartment syndrome. And the best example I can give people is when you're carrying luggage, for instance, something heavy in your hands and forearms start to burn. That is what happens, and, and that should be kind of a precursor. As I said, stimulating the tissue is a good thing, but making sure you don't overstimulate it. And um, in extreme cases, the bilateral uh, fasciotomies where they actually have to go in and cut the fascia tissue, which is the silver skin that people would see at the, the meat counter around your, your meat. That's the fascia tissue, that silver skin, and that contains the muscle. And when you it's, – it's like pushing a fire hydrant volume of water through a garden hose. That tickles the nerve endings, and that leads to that pain and discomfort. So it's important that when you train – that you have that discomfort, but it shouldn't be painful, or you're going to run the risk like these football players or the spin class, uh, the article in the New York Times. Okay, so in other words, you, you, it, the difference you say is, and when you say pain, because I think some people would say, well, this is kind of getting painful here, but, but it's a different kind of pain, I think is what you're saying. I like to really use the word, nothing ever should be painful. It should okay. be discomfort. There's discomfort that goes with it because... The body will only adapt if we force it to adapt, and that's that progressive overload. But something shouldn't be painful on the knee joint, the elbow joint, the shoulder joint, your low back, or the muscle tissue. Discomforting, yes. Painful, no. Because as I say at the beginning, that, that is required for the physiological adaptations because when you um, stimulate the tissue, you break the muscle tissue down, you create hormonal responses, and that is not only important, it's necessary to have the produce the results that most people want. In terms of, and we're chatting with uh, Steve Ritz, he's the founder of Fitness First. One of the things that this article pointed out that I thought was interesting was that there was they were find, picking this up in spin classes. What is it about a spin class? And would that compare to regular bicycling, which is enormously popular, uh, you know, here in the Twin Cities and, you know, around our region? The distinct difference by sitting on a recumbent bike in, say, a cardio theater at your traditional big box health club or going outside on your outdoor bike and a spin class bike. As I stated, the spin class bike, you're still trying to generate the revolutions by spinning the pedals, but per the, the teaching from the instructor, you tighten the resistance to stimulate the hills. And when that resistance and acceleration are combined, that just like the Iowa football players with the resistance doing the, the barbell squat and then accelerating to get 100 squats in 17 minutes. As you can imagine, that's quite a tempo. That's where you cross that line of, of sensible systematic stimulation and run the risk of um, um, having some issues. There's also been um, uh, an extreme number of cases in, in active duty Army training, and the same thing is just that pushing in the acceleration of, of the components of the training that that's a bad mixture. Wow. Okay. Um, Steve Ritz, founder of Fitness First. What are, what are some ways to avoid this? Well, um, as you can find out, it's not just type experience. You've got uh, army recruits, you've got um, South Carolina swimmers. There's a case with that, the Iowa football players, and then you got the casual weekend um, uh, exerciser. Four components that I make sure to make sure you're, you're really in tune with is the intensity 
and uh, making sure it's not too extreme, the exercise that you choose. Make sure that you, you merge into it so your conditioning level is tied to it. Hydration, hydration, hydration. Um, the primary factor for the onset of fatigue is dehydration. And I really push people to standard basic water. And if you can't stomach that, then put a, uh, you know, twist a lemon or something. But there's some, some concerns with the commercialized uh, sports drinks because of the high sugar content and the body's ability to absorb the water. It retards that ability with the sugar. And um, then the, the body temperature, making sure that you regulate your body temperature. It's not clear cut, but those are four variables that can be considered to be, um, if you can deal with those in a preventative, proactive fashion, you're going to put yourself in a better position. And then, as I said, just be on guard when you select the form of resistance. So if it's the spin bike, you, you're resistant by tightening down on the wheel and then accelerating or um, selecting a, a weight in the weight room and then trying to do something like 100 squats in 17 minutes. If it doesn't sound safe, it, it's probably not safe. doesn't mean you shouldn't do the spin class but make sure those variables, the intensity or extreme exercise, be on guard, your conditioning level, hydration, and then regulating your body temperature with the clothes you wear, um, you know, the fans in the room and things like that. Those are, those are controllables. Right. And, and what, what, what's so interesting about and we're chatting with the Steve Ritz here, the founder of Fitness First, about Rabdo, which is this um, extreme consequence of really overdoing it where the muscles start deteriorating, the urine turns brown, kidneys can go into failure. And it's something that, that's pretty rare, but, you know, Steve was explaining, you know, a few years ago, it happened with a, 11 uh, University of Iowa cases. It's popping up in some spin classes. There have been problems in the military. Some of this, you know, especially the stuff that was described in this article, describes sort of more the weekend warrior. But when you get into sort of the military, and again, the University of Iowa example that you came up with, you've got people who are in really good shape or, or who are young and, and fit. You mentioned the hydration. Does that help prevent it at all? Or can you still, even if you're in good shape, do that? And should you drink a lot of water before a workout? You should always be hydrated. And, and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So prehydration is always better than rehydration. Once things have gone in a bad direction to try to stop and reverse that, it's possible, but it makes it a, a, a steeper hill to climb. And so hydration is always good. And that's year-round. I mean, you hear it pumped in July and August when it's the uh, points are high. But it's actually more important in the winter when we're in January and it's, it's dry and, and arid. That's why we go through so much body lotion, for example. I mean, it's just being dissipated into the atmosphere. So we need to hydrate all year-round. And don't get me wrong again, uh, a little damage to the muscles is a good thing. And it, it's not only suggested, it's required if you want to have positive results because that stimulates them to grow and adapt to that stress because exercise is a stress. It just needs to be applied in a sensible, systematic fashion so that you can realistically uh, derive the results you want. But when that stress is too great, and in this case with the, the rhabdomyolus, um, it's an acute breakdown, acute, it's short-term breakdown of the muscle fibers resulting in that release of the, the fiber content, and it can be harmful. Um, it's very rare, as you stated, and um, just taking those variables that we've already discussed into mind and um, putting yourself in a position to be successful. What, see, would you recommend in terms of your advice for kind of, uh, you know, a good balanced workout for maybe somebody who's not in the best shape that hasn't, like, maybe done a lot of exercise in recent years? 
Well, time is a concern of yours. I think probably the most comprehensive return on investment you're going to get is total body uh, strength training because if you have metabolic issues, aren't able to burn the body fat, muscle tissue is greedy for energy to sustain itself. So that's a good thing. If you have bone density issues, the muscle tissue, the strength training is going to apply good sensible stimulation to the bones and they're going to respond by releasing collagen, osteoblast, all those good components for good bone health. If you have posture issues, strength training will, will help address that. If you have any orthopedic issues, meaning your, your knees ache, your shoulders, your back, having the strength and stability around those problematic areas is going to decrease the incidence and severity. So that's really where I would just like building a house. You need to make sure you dig and have a good foundation you build from there. Um, and then having something that three to five times a week addresses and two of which I'd recommend strength training and then finding some things that complement that. And if you have some particular likes, um, gravitate those because um, I think that's going to keep it fresh for you. If you have some dislikes, don't, don't force it down your throat. We have a variety of different things available to us nowadays. And um, I also recommend that mentally having a goal because a goal without a plan is merely a wish, and that plan is what's your desired outcome. Um, dedicate yourself to the most small steps along that way. Discipline yourself. Try to put an accountable uh, variable in there, and then try to have some supervision. It could even be a spouse. You know, you train together. That accountability is important. And then determination. Don't expect perfection. There's going to be some setbacks, some trials and tribulations. I think emotionally it's, it's important to have realized that um, it's going to be hard, but and the sooner you realize that, it's going to get a heck of a lot easier for you. And, and make sure you pace yourself. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, it's not going to happen. It's not supposed way, to be right painful. Away. Nope. And it shouldn't be painful. There's going to be discomfort, absolutely. Be patient, persistent. It's a process. It's not going to happen your way right away. And then physically make sure, regardless of what activities you select, that you, you're on guard for overuse, misuse issues. Overuse, it's not the quantity of the activity, it's the quality of the activity. As I stated, that, that stress, the damage to the tissue, that's a, that's a good thing. It's necessary, but making sure that you're not going too far. And um, make sure everything is evidence-based in, um, in the activity selection. And in terms of spin classes, because I know they are very popular, are there a range of them? Um, you know, are you saying just kind of beware of them, or just be you know just know what you're doing? Know what you're doing. Have a good, credible instructor. I've taken some spin classes. I imagine I can't say this for sure that there's going to be varying degrees, like beginner, intermediate, and advanced, um, as far as what the instructor runs you through. Um, take recommendations or referrals from maybe some of your, your loved ones, your neighbors, coworkers, as far as uh, instructor selection. And then, um, as I said, you will feel that, and I, I draw it analogous to carrying luggage or pails of water around the yard to water your plants, that acute compartment syndrome or the exertional compartment syndrome, and that's the blood flushing through to because energy supply, energy uptake, and, and waste removal is important when, when we're active. But when it goes too far, that, that pain you would feel, you know, that, that, that's a warning sign. It's going to be discomforting. I think everyone in your listening on us recognizes that when they, you, know, you feel your forearms burn. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. That, that's, um, that's okay. But when it goes too far, that's when this uh, rhabdomyolysis, um, that condition, uh, 
happens, and it's basically um, you're just the, the rod type component of the muscle, and then it gets shredded or broken down because done too much, too fast, too far. All right. Well, listen, uh, Steve, thank you for giving some insight into this because I think a lot of people, I'd never heard of it, and uh, obviously you have and uh, are an expert in this area. We really appreciate uh, your insights. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for reaching out, and I enjoyed spending time with you. Okay, absolutely. That is uh, – thank you to Steve Ritz. He is the founder of Fitness First. All right, folks. Uh, great show lined up for you. I want to tell you, David Schultz is back. I'm so happy. I can't wait to talk to him. He has been in China uh, for two weeks teaching there. So uh, he's going to be great to get his insights. Certainly a lot going on, uh, as always. Uh, but let's take a quick break and give you some weather. And then uh, on the back side of this hour, we are going to talk about the latest advances in Alzheimer's and what you and your loved ones. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's 634 in the Twin Cities, a steamy 89 degrees. Well, I got the idea for this segment uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was watching actually a rerun of 60 Minutes, and I think they must choose some of their best stories to rerun, which obviously makes sense. But uh, Leslie Stahl had a fascinating story about some research that was going on uh, with a group of individuals in South America uh, whose families had all – there was a widespread early onset – Alzheimer's. It was just, it was fascinating. It really was fascinating. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting and, and very candid is that, you know, she asked the researchers, some of whom have really devoted their entire lives to studying uh, Alzheimer's and, and dementia, and all of them said that they really had wished at this point or thought at this point they'd be further along than they are. And so I just wanted, I thought it'd be interesting to just, you know, catch up with an expert and talk about. What kinds of work is being done? Perhaps what kinds of advances are there? What kinds of advances are not being made? Uh, Dr. Michael Rosenblum is a health partner, health partner center for dementia and Alzheimer's care in neurology department. Uh, he is uh, also on the Alzheimer's Association of Minnesota and North Dakota. Uh, and he's also on the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council for Alzheimer's. And that's, uh, that's a mouthful, Dr. Rosenblum. I'm not sure if I got it all in and got it all in correctly. No, that sounds good to me. Okay. The introduction. All right. And, and you also were just at an international conference on Alzheimer's. Yep. I just came back from a wonderful conference in London on Alzheimer's disease. All right. Well, let me ask you, Dr. Rosenblum, because one of the things, as I said um, in the introduction, I was watching the show and, and there, it just struck me that there were a number of just prominent uh, people who had really been studying this illness for so long and, and they were frankly saying, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago when they started, they really thought at this point they'd be further along. What, what about you? Do you feel that there have been some advances or would you have expected us to be a little bit further along right now? You know, I would say that we're dealing with a really complex disease. Um, you know, one of the most complex diseases that, you know, affects you know, mankind. Um, this is a condition which is a neurodegenerative condition. It results in progressive loss of brain cells over time. Um, we know that it, you know, touches, um, you know, up to 50% of people once they reach the age of 85 and greater. And so this is a really common disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease. And it's 
not something like, let's say, um, you know, an infection where you have an antibiotic where it's a pretty easy thing to start a patient on an antibiotic and cure that disease. And so, you know, a lot of what has been done in the past, you know, half century or so has been trying to figure out the disease process itself. And once you understand the disease process, you can figure out, well, what can we do about it? What are the treatments? Um, you know, what are the pharmacological interventions for this? And you know, at this conference that I just uh, returned from, I think one of the major um, kind of discoveries that were discussed had to do with the biomarkers uh, related to Alzheimer's disease. And um, I think that is the, probably some of the most exciting work that's been going on to date. And a biomarker has to do with any type of um, blood test or spinal fluid test or brain image that gives you an idea about what's going on within the brain. Um, it can be used for diagnosis. It also could be used to track a disease over time. And we have very good biomarkers for you know, non-neurological diseases like diabetes. We take a blood test, you see if the sugar's high, and you can diagnose diabetes. We haven't had that for Alzheimer's disease, but from this conference, um, you know, I've learned that um, we're, we're headed in that direction, and it's quite exciting. Right. Uh, Dr. Rosenblum, let me ask you this, going back to what you said um, earlier, 50% of us will contract some form of Alzheimer's by the time we turn 85? Yeah, you know, if you look at the literature, it ranges from 38 to 50% um, of the population, um, you know, 85 and over. Oh, and, and when you mean, when you, and when you say that, are you talking sort of a spectrum of Alzheimer's, or maybe that's not the right word, but in different forms? Yeah, so having kind of the, the changes in the brain that would, you know, constitute Alzheimer's disease, that, that, that you know, that this would um, be you know, the findings that would um, typically affect that population. So a lot of this study, these studies are based on epidemiological in origin and um, have, you know, looked at the uh, populations based on age. And so, you know, for instance, we know that when someone um, turns 65, um, every um, five years, the, the risk doubles. But then, you know, some of these epidemiological changes, uh, these these studies have shown that, at um, age 85, you know, the, the number, the percentage of patients who have the disease increases. And so, um, you know, it, it's different studies have been, and, and they've ranged from 38 to um, 50% of those patients who have, you know, an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Okay. Is it, is there anything we can do, <laughs> since more of us are living to be 85, uh, to try and, you know, now, you know, to try and, and push it back or, or, or somehow ameliorate the, you know, the, the severity of it? Um, well, certainly. And, and, you know, this is something that I recommend to all of my patients in clinic um, about lifestyle. And there's been a lot of literature, a lot of this has to do with observational studies um, that have followed um, healthy individuals aging over time. And so it has to do with kind of being physically active, people who exercise regularly or those who are cognitively active, um, you know, playing games or um, trying new things, and those who are socially active, interacting with other um, friends and family members, um, those people who do these activities um, routinely have a reduced risk 
of developing Alzheimer's disease in these observational studies. And but so no, I, no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Okay. So, that, so you know, we can never tell a patient that if you do these things, 100% chance right. you will not get the disease. Um, and one of the limitations with an observational um, study is that you don't know what actually is the factor that definitely is preventing the disease in the first place. So there are, um, you know, there was an announcement about what's called the U.S. Pointer trial that um, will be started in 2018, looking at, you know, in a kind of almost like a clinical trial format to see whether or not these interventions in patients who are at high risk for Alzheimer's disease, does it make a difference? And And does it prevent the, you know, uh, development of cognitive symptoms or Alzheimer's disease? Now, are the the 50% of people who will get it after the age of 85, if you looked at them right now, and let's say they're all 40 years old, could mm-hmm. you and do do these testing and you know the the marker testing and you know DNA testing? Would you be able to tell which fifty percent was going to get it? Um, no, we're we're not at that stage right right now. And you know we should know that uh, Alzheimer's disease kind of exists on on a continuum. So we some of the changes that are associated with this disease happen about. Um, 15 to 20 years before someone presents to the doctor with complaints of memory loss. So there's these changes in the brain. Um, you know, one of the entities is the amyloid plaque um, that um, defines this disease. And so those um, develop initially. And then over time, you, you get the, um, the development of another entity known as nerve fibrillary tangles um, subsequently. And these two um, pathological um, entities kind of represent this disease, and we know that it is changing. These changes are occurring in the brain, um, you know, decade, a decade or more before the onset of symptoms. So what a lot of the, um, I guess, discussion at the meeting had, um, was geared toward is how do you identify the disease during those 15 to 20 years before patients actually present with symptoms? And there was a really fascinating discussion by uh, Dr. Randall Bateman from Wash University uh, talking about a potential blood test that's kind of in the works. Uh, Very preliminary data, but um, the idea of having a blood test for Alzheimer's disease is quite exciting because it's non-invasive and rather cheap. Right. Well, and let's going back to my question about, you know, if you, you know, if 50% of the population is going to get this after the age of 85 and if you tested everyone... Um, I ask, could you tell all the people who are going to get it? Can you tell if you tested everybody at age 40, can you tell some of the people who are definitely going to get it? Well, um, yeah, I, 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 I believe at this point it's, it's probably best to say that you can, you can say that um, there are certain risk factors for it. And you know, having, let's say, a positive, um, let's say, um, amyloid imaging test that shows the amyloid in the brain. This is a type of PET scan that can show um, these changes likely before someone has symptoms. Um, That's something that we know puts a patient at risk for the disease. But can we say that, again, is there a 100% chance that they'll develop it? It, I I cannot say that at this point. So, you know, a, a lot of what was discussed is still ongoing research, and um, we're not quite at that point. But, you know, in the future, it would be nice to be able to do as you're as you're saying, detect these changes early on when someone's in their 40s or 50s, and assuming that there is some type of treatment 
that you know modifies the disease progression, having a, a test that will show amyloid changes in the blood or in the brain, and in the case of a, of a you know pet amyloid image, that will be important, um, and so that will allow us to intervene earlier. And I think that's probably the key to um, you know getting better outcomes with regard to this disease. All right, chatting with Dr. Michael Rosenblum. He's just come back from an international conference on uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, he's with Health Partners Center for Dementia and Alzheimer's Care. We have to take a very quick break, doctor, but I, when we come back, I would like to ask you what advice you have for um, pa- families or people who might be worried about a loved one and then what kinds of treatments are available Um, any advances, that kind of thing. So uh, we'll have more with Dr. Michael Rosenblum right after this quick break. You're listening to News Radio 8. It is 648 in the Twin Cities. We're chatting with Dr. Michael Rosenblum from the Health Partners Center for Dementia and Alzheimer's Care. He's just back from an international conference on Alzheimer's. Dr. Rosenblum, what are some of the uh, sort of classic warning signs when people first come to your office? So... A lot of times I hear about um, patients repeating themselves in conversations or forgetting conversations that they've had with another family member or loved one. Sometimes those individuals who've been driving to a certain location for, you know, 30 years, let's say going to the dentist or doctor's office, they're getting lost um, driving these familiar routes. Uh, there are also patients who may pay bills twice or forget to pay pills and as a result um, end up in great debt um, and also fall prey to um, you know various predators who may you know give them a, a call and you know tell, tell them about this sweet skates um, scheme that they can make lots of money and so um, a lot of times the family member the spouse or the son or daughter are kind of telling me these symptoms and so usually those are red flags for me that they that the patient likely has a memory disorder um, most commonly Alzheimer's disease and is there a range in age or is it you know all over the map uh, in terms of patients who present to my clinic yes so you know, you know most of the time the, the the patients who are presenting to my clinic are 65 and over um, but you know this is something that you know, I learned about as a fellow, and I'm experiencing, and now that I've been in practice, there's what's known as young-onset Alzheimer's disease that is um, defined by a patient presenting, you know, younger than 65. And I have quite a fair number of patients in their 40s and 50s who have come to my clinic and um, basically met the criteria for Alzheimer's disease. So it's quite, um, you know, concerning that patients can present at such a young age, and I'm certainly seeing that in my clinic. We also know that there are various types of genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease referred to as autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease due to a gene mutation, and these patients commonly uh, present uh, to the physician in their 30s or 40s, but this represents a very small portion, I think about 1% or less, of the Alzheimer's um, population. In terms of, um, you know, when they come into you and, and then you, you, you get the final diagnosis, what, what then happens? I mean, are, are there any medications that, that have slowed down the progress uh, or, or are successful in some cases? You know, I would say that this disease is unique in, in that um, it's the non-pharmacological interventions are as important, if not more important, than any pharmacological therapy that I can prescribe. 
So, you know, there are no drugs out there that are targeting the very essence of Alzheimer's disease. And when I say that, I mean the amyloid plaques in the brain and those neurofibrillary tangles I mentioned earlier. But, but that's not for lack of trying, right? That's, that's correct. And there are ongoing trials, actually, we're a site for some of these um, trials for anti-amyloid therapies. And so this is, I mean, it's, it's exciting that we've gotten to the point where there are um, disease uh, drugs that are being developed that have proposed disease-modifying activity. And so um, I, I think if, you, you know, if you're, depending if you're an optimist or a pessimist, um, you can see this as, as a, uh, you know, a great advancement that, um, you know, we're, we're actually having targeted therapies that are being tested. And, you know, we're a site, the Mayo Clinic also is a, a site for an, an, a separate clinical trial with a, a similar drug. So um, there is advancement, but the drugs that are available right now that are FDA approved, um, I tell my patients that they're, they're basically symptomatic treatments. So um, they help the brain cells communicate with one another better um, due to increasing certain chemicals. And so patients may feel sharper uh, on one of these drugs. So Aeroceptor Dinepazil is one of these drugs that's commonly prescribed. But that's kind of um, what we have, at least at the beginning. There's another drug called memantine or Nemenda. Um, and then after I talk about the drugs, I'm also very much discussing, you know, a referral to the Alzheimer's Association, um, you know, developing a care plan, um, helping the family deal with safety issues like, you know, should the patient be paying bills or do they need a team approach or more importantly, taking their own medications. Often patients with memory disorders will forget a drug or take a drug twice. And that can be a problem if you're giving yourself insulin injections. So uh, addressing those safety issues is another important part of, you know, kind of developing uh, an intervention for these patients. And then it's important to have kind of ongoing uh, visits in the clinic because, again, there's different stages of this disease and patients have different needs at each stage. So your mild uh, early stage disease, it has a totally different set of um, issues than, let's say, your more advanced uh, Alzheimer's patient. And, you know, going back to the research, is there enough money going into Alzheimer's research? I mean, I, I, you know, is there, are there enough trials? I mean, how, how much, because, I mean, you just came back from an international conference. Obviously, this is a global issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you feel that there's enough? I know that there's only so much money in the world in terms of all the, all the you know, clinical research that's being done, but is there enough, do you think? Well, you know, I would say that um, a lot has changed over the you know, past seven years or so. I've been in practice in the Twin Cities. You know, I remember I think the amount was about, um, you know, $500 million, uh, that was uh, being dedicated to this research, and now it's, you know, well over um, one billion, and I, and, you know, most recently the approval for I think the four hundred million. Um, so we're headed in the right direction. Given that this disease is is affecting five point four million individuals right now, it's expected to triple by two thousand fifty. It's one of the most costly diseases out there. Um, I think there's still room for um, increased support because, again, um, this is going to be one of the most important diseases of the future with the growing baby boomer population. So um, the trend has been extremely um, exciting to see, but I'd also like to see more funds dedicated to Alzheimer's research. All right. And, and it sounds like that other piece of it, you know, working with the family, the care plans, um, I mean, that sounds like that's critical. 
It is. I mean, um, in this disease, um, you know, the, one has to also make sure that you're aware of the state of the caregiver because the patient's, um, you know, ability to live well with Alzheimer's disease also depends on the uh, psychological and the physical state of their care partner. And so when I see patients in my clinic, I make sure to also assess the care partner um, because, again, it's a really important part uh, of the equation and uh, making sure that um, both individuals are educated about the disease, what to expect, and um, making, you know, there are also programs where you can help train the the um, care partner to um, actually uh, be more of a professional caregiver. There's, there are various programs throughout the Twin Cities, and so we certainly um, introduce our our um, care partners to, to these. So, yes, the, to answer your question, the care partners are a really critical part of this equation. All right. Well, listen, um, Dr. Michael Rosenblum uh, from Health Partners, the Center for Dementia and Alzheimer's Care, uh, and again, just back from that conference, uh, International Conference on Alzheimer's. Thank you so much. I mean, I, obviously, it's a complex disease, but it's just uh, certainly giving us more information, and we all certainly hope that in the future there will be more scientific breakthroughs because the, the numbers you put out there are just are staggering. Uh, so thank you so much, Doctor. We appreciate your time this evening. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing up this important topic. Absolutely, sir. Thank you very much. Take care. Good night. All right, folks. Uh, interesting stuff. I do want to let you know that the uh, WCCO radio time check is 6.56. The no-hail sale is going on now at McCarthy Auto World. Save up to 20% off on all select Buicks and GMCs. Well, we have much more ahead here on this edition of Saturday Night with Esme. Coming up, we're going to chat with uh, a woman, Linda Schuster. She's led an extraordinary life. She was one of the first uh, war correspondents for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she actually had one husband, or first husband, who was a war correspondent, and I believe she met him on the job. He was killed covering a war in Central America. Uh, she went on to sort of switch gears. Her second husband turned out to be an ambassador. Uh, she was stationed in Peru. Uh, just a fascinating life. She's written a new book. We're going to talk to her. And then we're going to talk to something about, talk to an author about girls of hate or girl hate. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, the mean girls and, and what drives this trend, how that affects people. Uh, and then at eight o'clock, Dave Schultz is back. So I can't wait to talk to him. Certainly an awful lot to discuss with him. So keep it here, folks. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. 